This morning we're continuing our uh, messages through the book of Acts. We're nearly at the halfway point, just as we're nearly halfway through the summer. Uh, we're uh, racing uh, through the 28 chapters. This morning we'll be primarily in chapter 10, and this will be the the, the last sermon in, this, in the section of Acts in which the Apostle Peter is the, the primary uh, actor, you might say, the, the primary instrument of God in moving the Christian movement forward. And starting next week, uh, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes uh, Paul, well, Paul was his other name, his Greek name, uh, which means little, by the way, um, he, he will tend to move into the, the, uh, the limelight as the leader of uh, the missionary expansion of the church. This morning, I, I want to continue to uh, invite us to look at the book of Acts, uh, invite us to look at preaching through or reading through the book of Acts as a kind of uh, returning to our roots, not in the sort of uh, curious way that's common uh, in uh, North America, we're, we're somewhat unique. Well, I don't know that we're entirely unique, but uh, uh, a lot of North Americans have their roots in, in Europe or Britain. And it's, uh, it's something that, there's something about us that we're fascinated by our roots, that, that we, uh, we identify as Americans, but that's not sufficient to really satisfy our, our desire to say who we are. So uh, most of us can speak of ourselves not just as Americans, but we can de uh, describe ourselves in terms of uh, where we came from. There's still, there's still enough in our memory, our, our collective memories, about who we are to remind us that, that we aren't originally from here. We, we landed here from somewhere else. Uh, when, when I was in uh, Scotland, we moved to Scotland in the mid-'70s. And that was long, you know, the internet hadn't been invented. I suppose, the, you know, telephone had been recently invented. But um, the, uh, there was no Ancestry.com, you know, where you could, you know, scrape the spit out of the back of your throat and send it in and find out who you were. But, uh, but people knew, and a lot of people knew where their ancestors came from. And it was, uh, it was a source of great amusement to my congregation that uh, through the summer there, there would always be Americans that would turn up and they would land at our door and were always, uh, as soon as they heard me speak, they were keenly disappointed. They figured, you know, we need a Scottish person to help us with this. But um, it was typically, uh, you know, hi, we're the McClintocks from Ohio, and our, our great-great-grandmother was from your town, and she was Presbyterian. We saw Presbyterian out on your church sign, and we're just looking for her grave and wondered if you could help us. Uh, and this was, it, I mean, it wasn't like a nonstop thing, but it was just a regular event throughout the summer for years and years. People would show up and they were looking for, for Great Granny's grave and that this was going to be really meaningful to them to find it. And the, the people in, in my church, uh, people in, in my town, just thought, th they thought that was very curious and in some ways amusing and, and in some ways even pitiable that people would fly across the ocean to look for some person's grave. You know, they would, if they were flying across the ocean, they'd be going to Disney World or something like that. Um, but they had absolutely no interest in their roots. 
They knew, they knew more about the history of the ceramic dogs on their fireplace mantle than they did about their great-grandparents. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't fathom this interest in where we came from because their people had been there time out of mind. It, was, it wasn't something that they thought about. But uh, we're, we're a people who believe or who have an awareness that uh, as grounded as we may be here, uh, it doesn't fully satisfy our sense of, of being able to say who we are or even to be a people with deep roots. We have to go somewhere else to find our roots. And as the people of God, uh, we, we know that our roots are somewhere else. We know our roots are in the heavenly city. And we know that we're part of a movement that has its roots in uh, very special events in the past that begin with Pentecost. So we go to the book of Acts, and we're, uh, we're not going back out of curiosity uh, to just get a better sense of who we are, but we go back, uh, as it were, to sort of a, to check how, or to, to look at our roots as a kind of lens by which we are able to, uh, to make a judgment about how we're doing now, to make a judgment about uh, is, uh, is there some continuity, is there there's some correlation such that what, what we experience and how we uh, operate, how we live life together as a church seems to resonate and be consistent with the, the roots of the Christian movement. Now, you have to be careful with this because it, it would be, um, it would be a, a, a very misguided notion that the way a movement looks 2,000 years from its origins in another country, in another era, I mean, we, we've had the uh, scientific revolution, we've had industrial revolutions, we've had, uh, you know, we've had 2,000 years of Christianity in a lot of parts of the world that have, uh, have uh, impacted our present setting. So it, it's not simply a sort of naive, oh, this is how they did it, this is how we'll do it, and the closer we can copy their lives, the closer we will be to authentic Christianity. Movements grow and develop, and as they spread, they adapt. You see the Christian movement adapting, organizing itself, uh, wrestling with uh, what, what happens next. So move, movements uh, take shape in different ways and, and change their appearance through time. But there is something about, as we go back to the book of Acts, there are certain dynamics there are certain ways of being. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's a conviction that these mark, these are authentic marks of the Christian movement. And so uh, we look at it as a lens of sort. This morning I want to, uh, I want to look at um, the visit of Peter to Cornelius. Take, Peter takes the gospel uh, to the, the household of Cornelius. The title of my message is Crossing Boundaries. This is a cultural boundary that's crossed very early in the life of the Christian movement. Um, and I'd like us to think about how the Christian movement continues to be called by God to cross boundaries in, in carrying out the mission of God. Because there is there's always this... Uh, 
drag, if you will. There's always this, uh, this sense that we're most comfortable among people who are most like us, and uh, in our comfort zone, we do our best work. And I'll talk about this a little more in relationship to pragmatism. But uh, what I want to do is just set up the story very quickly for those of you who may not remember the story of uh, Peter and Cornelius. But uh, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He, centurion. he lives in the town of Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast of Palestine, kind of right in the middle, you might say. Uh, he's a God-fearer. He's come into contact with the faith of the people of Israel, with the God, uh, the God of Israel, probably has association with the synagogue. He knows, this, he knows the story of the covenant God uh, of the whole earth. And he longs, he longs to be right with this God. He, he, longs, he longs for salvation. And he's been, he's been praying. I mean, God's been preparing. God's been preparing Cornelius and his household. Just as God, you know, if you step back, God has been preparing the Mediterranean world for the Christian movement for hundreds of years, and it's coming home to the people that God is calling. Here's this man, Cornelius. He longs, he longs for uh, something that he knows he doesn't have yet, and he knows that the God of Israel can give him uh, what it is that he seeks in peace of heart and uh, the, the knowledge of salvation. And so he's praying and he's praying and he's doing good works and the, the Lord sends an angel. The Lord sends an angel and says, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. Here's what you need to do. You need to send a Joppa. You need to send a Joppa and find a guy named Simon, also called Peter. He's staying at the home of a man named Simon the Tanner. You send for him and bring him here and he'll tell you what you need to know. So that's how the story starts. Uh, Joppa is about 30 miles south of Caesarea on the coast. Uh, two days walk. I suppose centurions could do it in a day, but they're bringing Peter back. So they, it's two days out and it'll be two days back. Uh, on the second day, the messengers are arriving at Peter's house, or the house where Peter's staying. Peter's up on the roof at lunchtime and I don't know, sometimes, you know, midday lunch, he, he dozes off uh, while he's waiting for lunch to appear, and the Lord gives him a vision, a vision of a tablecloth coming down from heaven, and there's all kinds of unclean food, according to the di Jewish dietary laws, on the table, and the, the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Rise, Peter, eat up. And Peter says, no, 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 no way, I'm, you know, I'm not that kind of person. I'm, I've never eaten anything uh, unclean that, that God has uh, prescribed. And the Lord says, the Lord says to Peter, what I have called clean, uh, don't you call unclean. And Peter's trying to, the next thing is Peter's trying to figure this out. What in the world can that mean? And then the, the messengers knock at the door and they tell the story of how, why they're coming. And the Holy Spirit at that point says to Peter, go with these men uh, and, and don't uh, have any scruples about that. Just go and, and you'll see what you need to do. So as, as he travels, he's, the, the dream begins to make more and more sense. So that's, that's how 
Peter ends up at the home. Peter the Jew, uh, leader of the Christian movement, ends up the, at the home of Cornelius the Gentile. So, let's see if I can get my. There it goes. We'll read, we'll pick up the story. Um, let me get back here. All right. I apologize. No, can somebody put, yeah, here I am. So, Peter's there. Yeah. All right. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Maybe I will just read this from the, the Word of God. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins." While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been given, had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to stay for some days. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. What I'd like us to think about in this matter of crossing boundaries is the awful inefficiency of God's uh, way of bringing salvation. Of course, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm speaking somewhat tongue-in-cheek when I say that. But I say that as, a, as part of a culture that values efficiency. One of the most important philosophies that continues to dominate American life is the philosophy of pragmatism. Pragmatism. Pragmatism is just get the job done. <laughs> and pragmatism as a philosophy is that what works, what works is what's best. And in fact, what works really is ultimate truth. The question of, is this right? Is this the best thing to do? Is there some principle at stake? 
that doesn't really enter into pragmatism. Pragmatism is what gets the job done, what's most efficient. Uh, when you look at the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts, it clearly does not uh, settle well with the spirit of pragmatism. It, God's way seems just a bit discombobulated and uh, round, the, round the bend. It's uh, hardly, you know, and, and in, in its way, it doesn't really uh, rise to the most powerful and effective way uh, seemingly to get the job done. Just think about it. Just think about it for a minute. Uh, Cornel here's Cornelius. He, needs, he wants to know how to be saved. He wants to know how to be right with God. So what does God do? God sends an angel. And the angel got Cornelius' attention. He was, you know, he was definitely a, a, you know, a little perturbed. He was a little you know, anxious. Here is an angel from the Lord. God has heard your prayers. Now, I think, the, I think the most effective and compelling and efficient way to move Cornelius to the place where he, where he would want to be is to have the angel say, now, now Cornelius, here is what you need to know. God loves you. God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him might be saved. I mean, here is an angel. He's already there. The angel, I'm, I'm thinking the angel would know uh, something of, the, of God's uh, wonderful plan of salvation. They were there when Jesus was born. You know, they sang on uh, Christmas morning. Uh, they know what God's up to. And, and they speak with a voice that, you know, you would listen. I would listen. I think I would listen. But the angel says, God's heard your prayers. Go send for a guy named Peter. And he'll tell you what you need to do. There's another episode, a chapter earlier. This fellow Saul of Tarsus, who's persecuting Christians, he's gone to Damascus and he's uh, getting near this, the city of Damascus, high noon, and he is struck down by a light from heaven and, and Jesus appears to him. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Now there's an opportunity for Saul of Tarsus to get the gospel firsthand from Jesus himself, the Savior of the world. What does Jesus say to Saul? Go on into town and it will be told you, told to you what you need to do. I mean, if... If there were, if, from our standpoint, if there were ever an opportunity to do some, something, you know, get it, get it done, get it done right, get it done so that it lasts, let the angel tell the message. Let Jesus tell the message. And they just tell him, move on and somebody else will come and tell you. Some human, someone Someone who knows uh, the message, they will come and tell you. I mean, how inefficient is that? How inefficient? You could have, you know, you could have accelerated this process uh, days and days and days. But no, God says, you go wait, you send for this person, and what you need to know will be told to you by, by some other human being. So that... 
The first, uh, the first thing that I'd like to observe is that in the inefficiency of God, uh, I think St. Paul calls this the foolishness of God. It's an aspect of the weakness of God. That through the, the foolishness of people bringing a message, other people might be saved. When someone else comes bringing the message, bearing witness to something that God has done, that opens the door, that opens the door wide for faith. You, you have to make a decision about, is this person, does this person seem like a trustworthy person? Does this testimony seem credible? If, if Jesus in blinding light from heaven says, here is the way, well, that would be pretty compelling. And where would the room be for faith? I suppose you still have to have faith that, that what I'm seeing is Jesus and, not just, and that I'm not hallucinating. I think there's always room for faith. There's, there is certainly not in the, in the uh, sharing of the Christian message and in the Christian way of salvation, there is, there is nothing like the, what we would call scientific certainty. And even scientific certainty itself is provisional. You know, not all the experiments that could be done have been done. We, there, there are some pretty re reliable things from science for which we're grateful. God's ordered the world in such a way that we can live here and, and be pretty confident that most days will unfold like yesterday, uh, though there is always the possibility that, that uh, the apple cart could be upset for us. So Christian faith is brought about through people bearing witness. And that's what Peter says to, to Cornelius. Uh, he says, you, you already have heard about Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good and setting free those who were under the tyranny of the devil. Uh, they may not have heard that he was put to death and that God raised him up and that God has made him judge of the living and the dead. That's pretty, that's pretty arresting news. Jesus of Nazareth is now judge of the living and the dead. And you know what else? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And what happens at that point? The people gathered, they start speaking in tongues. They've, they've been converted. I mean, Peter didn't even, he didn't even have time to give the altar call. He didn't have time to say, oh, and now what you need to do is here are the three steps to faith. Or here's the prayer that you need to pray. Do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? Here, pray this prayer. He doesn't get there. He says, he's judge of the living and the dead. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And these hearts, that's what they've been waiting to hear. They're, the Spirit has made them so ready. They hear this, and they say, yes. And the, and the Spirit descends upon them and they speak in tongues. And, and of course, this is really important because Peter is the leader of a church that's going to have to figure out, well, what do we do with these Gentiles? Are, are they part of the group or not? And that'll be the principal issue that the church will struggle with throughout the book of Acts and through Paul's epistles. Uh, are these folks part of the group or not? And in the divine inefficiency, God has got that covered. God goes around this, not just so Cornelius can get saved, but so Peter and the church can know how to come together as a people uh, drawn across boundaries. 
the boundary between a Jew and a Gentile is a very uh, deep divide. Certainly for Peter, it was a deep divide. And it was one that he, if you read the letter to the Galatians, it's one that he struggled with even after this. That there were times when he uh, felt compelled, even though he hung out with Gentiles pretty freely, there were times when he got around other Jewish Christians who weren't that comfortable and said, you shouldn't be doing this, that he kind of went back with them. And St. Paul called him to account for that. So this is, this is a big issue. Uh, isn't, isn't a lot easier to be Christians if we just hang out with people like us and if our churches are comprised of people who are just like us. Which brings me to the second and the final uh, point of, of divine inefficiency. I, I, before I move to that, I just want to say there's, uh, on a, and it's not a negative sermon, but in terms of just practical hope, I think Peter's words to Cornelius and his household are a wonderful encouragement to, to the church. The churches, are, churches are struggling. You know, what should we do? What should we be about? Well, what did Jesus do? There's, there's a phrase. What did Jesus do? Well, usually it's what would Jesus do? I tend to think, well, what did Jesus do? And once you get that nailed down, I think asking what did Jesus do is much better than asking what would Jesus do? Um, because that's sort of speculative. If I'm going to speculate, I would rather ask, you know, what would your mother do? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to that, at least with my mother. Um, but Jesus did all sorts of things that I would not have anticipated. Uh, and sometimes what would Jesus do just devolves or comes around the bend to, well, he would probably do something nice for folks, and that's what I would do. And so... Uh, it's, it's not always the most helpful thing. I'm digressing a bit here. But Jesus went about doing good. Jesus went about doing good. Um, there is a world of opportunity to get out there and do good. And the church doesn't need to organize it for you. If it does, good. But there's all kinds of ways to get out there and do good, and that's our sweet spot. That's where, where we are at our best is doing what Jesus did. He went about doing good and delivering all those who were under the tyranny of the devil. Just about every church I've been to, it's hard for me to think of many churches that I've gone to where they didn't have some folks tied into something that I could tie into and be part of. At my last interim, I was part of a Bible study at the Tippecanoe County Jail. Men in the church had been doing this Bible study for 20 years. I said, Pastor, come along. And you take a turn, you know, once every, every third Tuesday night, that's your night, you're teaching. And do that for a year and a half. And it will change your view of how it is people end up in jail and what it's like for them. Almost all of them in the Tippecanoe County Jail. I mean, it's not a high-security place. but Almost all of them are there because of drug addiction. And that's why they steal. Uh, when you ask them, what shall we pray for? It's always, about, pray for my children because they've been taken away from me. I can't, and I'm, I'm locked up. I can't go see them. It's a... It's a, one, it's a tremendous opportunity to minister love and just, just showing up and saying, you know, you're locked away, but there's Christians at least 
that haven't forgotten you. And we, have, we want to bring you hope and encouragement. I think of another church. Uh, uh, I still have the T-shirt. It's about 15 years old. But uh, every one Saturday a month, they all put on their T-shirts. And they went out and uh, a big group of them would go work on a house for, for someone who was uh, disabled or elderly and no, no longer to keep up their house. And, and the name of the organization was Good Works. Good Works. Uh, built tremendous fellowship, and it was a great blessing. People would say, thank you so much. And we would pray with them. We'd go, we'd start, and before we'd start the job, we would pray for them. We would ask how we could pray for them. We'd pray for their families, all sorts of things. Uh, but it's not hard. There are more opportunities to go out and do good than, than you can begin to address. So, you know, while you're sitting around thinking, you know, oh, what can we do as a church? You are the church. It's not something the church has to do for you. You are the church. You can go out. You can do good. And you can be like Jesus. It's a little digression there. I apologize. The second, second area of divine inefficiency is this whole plan to bring different people together. Jews and Gentiles, just a big, you know, the Gentiles, just they thought the Jews were really odd, had all kinds of, uh, and they were kind of off to themselves, pretty clannish, didn't mix in with the world uh, like they did. And of course, the, the, for the Jews, Gentile is just a synonym for sinner. So we're going to be a church where, you know, we're going, to, we're going to welcome people who we regard essentially as sinners into our fellowship. I mean, it's not that Gentiles couldn't be welcomed, but they had to become Jews first. You have to, be, you have to become like us, and then you can be part of our group. God's plan was to bring these folks together in one group, one community. That's sorted out to as you go through, through uh, the book of Acts and certainly in the epistles, they're still wrestling with that. And most of the exhortations to unity and Christian love and Christian charity in the New Testament letters are about Jews and Gentiles getting along. So that's terribly inefficient. One of the, one of the phenomena in our time, uh, in roughly 1968, the most dramatic period of church growth in U.S. history ended. And the, the downward trend that we're all kind of aware of started right about then, end of the 1960s. At the same time, there were some Christians who noticed that. Said, you know, our churches are still full, uh, and we seem to be doing all right, but if you look at what's happening, population growth is way outstripping the growth of the church. We're not keeping up. And statistically, we are becoming more and more of a minority uh, because church growth is not keeping pace with population growth. And you had the emergence of something called the church growth movement, which was a wonderful thing in so many respects. But one of the, one of the principles of the church growth movement, which I think is, has not been so helpful, was the realization that churches grow fastest when they're started with people who are all alike. Churches grow fastest when everybody in the church is pretty much alike. Same economic, you know, same ethnicity. Just the more homogeneous you are, the more people are comfortable with each other. 
the fewer boundaries they have to cross. So let's make it easy. Let's do what works. And I think that's called pragmatism. And that's where if you go back and you look at the book of Acts as a kind of lens through what are we doing? Clearly in the book of Acts, this notion of community, the communion of saints, of being together, one of the things they were not willing to do uh, is say, uh, well, we, we will be together in our comfortable groups. And everybody will be comfortable. We may not be together as one big group, one movement, but we'll... We'll be, we'll be together, but with people that we're comfortable being together with. I'll, I'll close by just uh, sharing a, a couple of stories. Maybe, maybe one will be enough. Uh, there's an EPC church plant in South Bend, Indiana, home of uh, Notre Dame University. The core of this EPC church plant are mainly Notre Dame professors, uh, administrators, uh, staff, and there are quite a few, and there are quite a few professional people who have, uh, if degrees not from Notre Dame, somewhere else, and they're all right. They're comfortable. You know, they have the pe- professors have tenure. The people they have their 401ks. They're fixed as much as uh, any you know any of us uh, in middle class or upper middle class U.S. are fixed. Uh, their, uh, their futures look pretty secure. But they have, they have this deep conviction that the church is to be a church of, uh, of both the well-off and a church of the poor. Church should be a place where rich and poor come together. And they seem to get this idea from the Bible somewhere, the teaching of Jesus. And they're deeply committed to that. He said, we are, not go- we are not going to be a church of just folk like us. We're going to try to plant a church that reflects Jesus' heart for the poor. And so they locate, their, their place of meeting is in the poorest area of South Bend. And there's, you know, some kind of uh, uh, dicey places, we might judge, uh, in South Bend. That's where they meet. Now, I've, I've been to their services a couple of times and there, you will go in and you'll meet people who look pretty much like us, and there will be homeless people. And uh, they see it as their church too. And it has been, in terms of the history of uh, Midwest Presbytery, it's been one of the most difficult church plants. It's just a struggle. It's really, uh, and it's, it's hard it's hard for folks like us to know how to act, how to adapt, how to start a conversation, generally, with homeless people. Um, they, homeless people just see the world a little differently. But they're deeply committed to this, and they keep at it. And they've had to move their, you know, they keep getting kicked out of their uh, meeting places by developers and, and all sorts of things, but they persevere, and, every, as, and the biggest, biggest hurdle is that when they have to move, uh, some of the homeless folks lose touch because they're, even though they're maybe only relocated uh, with you know a mile or so, it's far enough that it's hard for them to get there. Uh, and but their their reports in, to me uh, and to the presbytery I think are always the most convicting, because you like to go hear about the you know the wonderful success stories and the exponential growth of different things, but here's this group 
trying, trying to be the body of Christ the way Jesus describes the body of Christ. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there is in, I think, the grace to persevere, hold on to the vision, uh, and cross these boundaries uh, where uh, by getting to know people in, in the Lord, the differences just seem to be a little less significant and the union with Christ makes all the difference in the world. Not a very efficient God, but a God who's committed to a vision that we find in uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Uh, the, the desire is that on earth we would reflect what goes on around the throne where people of every nation, every tribe, every language, every kindred are joining and worshiping together. So this is a time in the life of the church. The pastor search committee is underway. Um, time to commit ourselves. Time to commit as a church to be a, a people who will cross boundaries as the Spirit drives us across them. Amen. Lord, we thank you uh, that you call us into the work of your kingdom, that you call us to share a message that is often rejected as foolishness or a stumbling block, but that by your Holy Spirit is the power of God and the wisdom of God, the word that brings down strongholds and the word that brings salvation to broken and longing hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.